Well, tonight is when we start to get really crazy in the book of Revelation. It's when I'm going to ask more questions than I give you answers for. And because of where we're, where we're coming in the book of Revelation especially, I want to give you a little bit of a, uh, just a reminder intro tonight uh, on a couple things. If you if you'll, will remember back with me to this summer and walking through Daniel, uh, Daniel chapter 12, there is a statement made. It would also help if I went the right direction at Ezekiel. Daniel chapter 12, there is a, a statement made uh, from uh, who I believe is Jesus. At minimum, it's a, a very majestic messenger of God. I, I, when I, we walked through it in Daniel 12, I told you I think firmly it's Christ, but Regardless, you have, you have this messenger who's speaking to Daniel, and he says in verse 4 of Daniel 12, But for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book. Until the end of time, many will go back and forth, and knowledge will increase. And uh, when you dig into that statement, there's several different ways that that statement is taken, but, but one of them that seems particularly pertinent uh, to both the context there and to tonight is the fact that when we come to issues of prophecy that have yet to be fulfilled, that there is a reality that the closer we get to their fulfillment, the details that once seemed hard to understand will start to come into greater clarity. It's, it's as if uh, from a distance that sign looks fuzzy, but the closer and closer you get to the sign, details start to become more and more clear. And so having said that, we need to understand just yet again, when it comes to prophecy, especially end times prophecy, there is a lot of there's a lot of stuff out there. Honestly, it's, it's overwhelming to try to prepare every week. Uh, not by any means because I don't like to prepare, but, but simply because I can't even touch a fraction of what all is out there because there is so much that's both good and terrible out there. And you've got to really, and some stuff seems good and becomes terrible. And some stuff initially you think is terrible and you realize it's just, it's just a lot. And we need to understand that there is a reality biblically to prophecy that there are things God understands are going to seem a little more murky until it gets closer. Let me give you just one simple example of what I mean by that. Uh, for a long time, and I'm not saying this is necessarily it, I'm just saying look at how something that has happened recently has caused us to think about something differently. Uh, for a long time, last 2,000 years, talked about a mark of the beast that would be necessary, be on your forehead or in your hand, and you'd be necessary to purchase stuff. And you think, well, what on earth is that? Everyone get a tattoo on their forehead? That seems absurd. But then all of a sudden in the last two years, we've heard about little chips they can slip in your wrist to enable you to, and to, okay, I'm not saying those chips are the mark of the beast. What I am saying is all of a sudden we've gotten closer to something that makes us rethink and go, oh, wow. People have wondered, a passage we'll look at tonight, how will the entire world witness the death of the two witnesses? 150 years ago, how would they? About 60 years ago, well, a lot of the world's got television, but 24-7 news hadn't happened. That wouldn't come till the 80s. Well, now, let's even be more real. How much of the world has this? Okay, my point is, we need to have a humility that recognizes things that we may have once been, oh, it's got to be exactly this way. As, as events get closer, we may go, oh, actually, that's, that doesn't really add up. We're, 
This is what scripture compels us to do. In addition, listen to what Paul writes to, first, to, to Timothy in First and Second Timothy. First Timothy, Paul writes, heeding Timothy, a young pastor, he writes and he says, uh, um, I urge you to stay where you're at in Ephesus so you may instruct certain men to not teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation. And this is not the only place in Paul's letters where he urges individuals to avoid getting wrapped up in endless genealogies and speculation. Now, you turn, you turn to 2 Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says, but avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. So he tells Timothy broadly, hey, be careful, Timothy, that you don't get caught up in speculating about what is unclear or what is fruitless. And then in 2 Timothy, he gives an example of two individuals who have been speculating on end-time prophecy but have said something dumb, and it's ruining people's faith. So we need to be careful as we approach into some of these passages where there are a variety of opinions and there may be some that some of us are more familiar with and we cling to because that's the only way we've ever heard it. There may be some that we're less familiar with or, or some may be more familiar with this. More, We need to have a humility that recognizes until it happens, the best any of us are gonna do is educated speculation. Now there's a place to study it. That's why we're doing it. Which leads me back to, here's what Paul also tells in that same passage in 1 Timothy, avoid endless speculation uh, in genealogies, which gives rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. The aim of what we're doing tonight is to, is to, is to further know how to walk with Jesus. I'm not sure that we have any more clarity on the future aspects of Revelation than the original readers. But the original readers were intended to meet Jesus and have an actual application into their lives, and the same is true for you and I tonight and in the rest of the nights that we go through. And so let me just tell you, and then I'll just add to this personally. Uh, reality is, uh, I can't give an account for any other pastor or teacher you've ever heard or taught or preached or anything like that, nor do I attempt to try to take anybody on. What I do know is I, as pastor, have to stand before Jesus Christ one day and give account for every last word that comes out of this mouth. And that terrifies me in a good way. And so sometimes my pet peeves with passages where there is, if we're being intellectually honest, there is room for some discussion. One of my pet peeves is when pastors will get up and say, it is only this way, and if you don't agree with me, then you are just outright a heretic. There are things that is true with. Jesus is fully God and man. I'm telling you that, and you don't agree with me, then you don't agree with Jesus, because that's not my word, it's his word, and it's pretty clear. But understand, I have a little bit of a different, I am more willing to tell you, and we're gonna do that tonight, hey, here's, here's two pretty solid ways we could interpret this. Now, either way is gonna lead us to the same application. But in humility, we can acknowledge there's merit both ways, and you may go, well, pastor, I think it's this way and not that. That's great. You don't have to give an account for what's said tonight. I do. And I don't want to stand before the Lord and the Lord look at me and say, son, why did you say such stupid stuff? 
Can't say that at home, but I'm going to say it in here. I don't want that before the Lord one day. So if I say something and you go, well, pastor, that's not where I land or that's not, that's okay. That's okay. Because we are honest, we're going to be clear and stand firm on the things that are clear and on the things that are a little bit murky, we're going to walk in humility with each other before the Lord. It's like someone told me the other day, they said, I know, pastor, that that you, uh, you lean a little bit more to a post-trib rapture, but I'm going to tell you, when we all get caught up before the tribulation in the sky, I'm going to say, I told you so, and I said, and I'll say, bless you. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> great, that's awesome. I, I hope you're right and I'm wrong. And, and uh, the more you dig into all of this too, in addition to just all that's out there, forget all that's out there. Frank, frankly, there is a lot in Scripture that it is easy to gloss over that deals with what is coming. And to try to put it all together, you will constantly be stretched. I am being stretched and challenged as a follower of Christ as I work through these things. And so I hope you will too. Now, I give you that long intro. It's about eight minutes intro to simply say, we're going to get crazy tonight. So if you will, turn with me to Revelation chapter 11. And you'll remember we are, we are in the midst of the trumpet judgments. Uh, we've made it through the first six trumpet judgments, and then we're in, we're in an interlude if you've ever been to a four-hour movie back in the day, you would have an interlude, a bathroom break. Um, we're in an interlude, and in that interlude in chapter 10, we watched, uh, we watched this angelic being uh, who has descriptors that make you think it's possibly Jesus, but there's also challenges with why would Jesus be called an angel, so perhaps it's just a powerful angel. Regardless, this being charges, uh, he, he charges John uh, to take the word of the Lord and eat it. And you'll remember we talked last week, it says the word of the Lord will be sweet to the taste, bitter to the stomach, that the reality of embracing God at his word in this world, there is an unbelievable sweetness to it. But then when you live out what he tells you to live out in this world, there is a bitterness, a hardship that comes with it because we are not living in a world where he at his word is honored. And sometimes that word, and I didn't, and I, I failed to, to give this aspect to the application last week, but if we really eat his word, uh, where, uh, really embrace him at his word where he's at, uh, part of what uh, that will mean is that we're going to have to speak to people we love things they will hate hearing. That's hard. That's bitter to the stomach. And having been in situations where I have had to do that, those are some of the worst memories of my life. And I'm sure you can say the same. So there is this reality. But at the core of this eating of God's word, as he says, he calls him, you must go prophesy again. You have a worldwide mission uh, mandate to witness. And it's on the tail of that charge to John that now we see this. Then there was given to me, John, a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, get up and measure the temple of God or the sanctuary of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it for it has been given to the nations and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Now let's stop there for a moment. A measuring rod, a measuring rod or a measuring reed, there's two basic ways that that is used uh, it, literally, but, but also literally in a, in a figurative sense. Uh, if you were to measure something, that can, that can stand uh, for, for judgment. 
You're measuring something because it has fallen short of the measurement, and in that measuring, there is a judgment that is issued. That is one way that that works. But measuring also has another sense in Scripture, and it's used this way uh, way, uh, throughout the Old Testament prophets. And, And let's not forget, the Old Testament prophets are a background and foundation upon which Revelation sits. Uh, Time does not permit tonight for me to show you even a fraction of the ways just this passage tethers back into so many portions of the Old Testament. But the other way of a measuring rod is to set something apart for preservation and protection. And in fact, I believe it's in Micah, it's speaking to the, 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 uh, the Israel. It is said that those of Israel who refuse to repent, they will not be measured, meaning they will not be protected. So there is an idea when he says to John, take this measuring rod and measure out this place, these people, what he is saying is he is saying, you are going to measure out for the purpose of God's protection, his preservation of God, of God, um, of God carving out this group of people for protection and preservation. So that's what, that's what the idea of measuring rod is. And, and, and that's the basis here. What this does though, is it leads us into some questions like what is God's sanctuary, God's temple? Is that to be taken literally in the sense of an actual physical stone upon stone temple building? Or is it something figurative? What is the great city? Who are the worshipers? What are the 42 months? And I'll just give you background. Depending, uh, there's, there's five broad camps and ways that those two verses are interpreted with drastically different uh, answers to those questions. Uh, there's some who would say that these verses refer specifically to the seven years of the tribulation, and they refer to a time that is immediately, the days immediately preceding Christ's final return, that the temple and the altar is a literal third temple, that the holy city is the literal city of Jerusalem that you and I know today. These worshipers are Jews who are elect, and the outer court are are pagan Gentiles who, who, aren't, who aren't guaranteed a salvation. There's some who would say all of this is literal to a T. And it all happened by 70 AD when, Roman, when Rome came and sacked Jerusalem in the temple and it's all in the past. There are those who would modify it and say, you should understand this is referring to something literal, but the details are using symbolic language. And so the sanctuary, the altar, the worshiper, Worshippers refer to ethnic Jews who are saved in the end times, and the outer courts are those who, Jews who don't believe, and both groups will undergo persecution. There are those who would say, uh, none of this is future, but it's true now and will be true to the end that the, the outer courts are the apostate church who will be deceived and align itself outside. There is Another view that says the details are mostly future, though we can see them present today, and, and the idea of the, 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 the language of the temple is not referring to a literal temple, but is referring to the, the other way that the temple of God is used, especially in the New Testament, to refer to the church, the saints. And I can name you people whom you would quote and whose books you've read who represent all five of those views. Lest you say, well, one of those is now, I, 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 
as I've told you, I've tipped my hand when it comes to Revelation. I think the majority of the book is referring to that which is future. I think that's pretty clear. So some of these are easy for us to toss out. Uh, here, here's essentially the ways you would go with this. If the temple is literal, which there is, uh, there is uh, statements in places like Matthew 24 and 2 Thessalonians 2 that seem to imply that before the end of time, there is a third Jewish temple that is built on the Temple Mount. Uh, you and I know today that for that to happen, would, it would have to take unbelievable, especially in our current moment, unbelievable uh, political posturing because the Dome of the Rock, one of the sacred places of the Muslims, is also there. And to, to be able to have both buildings or the demolition of one for the other, it really, we can't even fathom it if we're honest. Some take it literal and, and that the sign of marking apart is uh, marking those is that those who are worshiping are uh, are those uh, Jews who will be, we've seen the elect, the 144,000 who will be saved. And that's a great thought. The challenge with that is, why, why is, especially if this is taking place right before the return of Jesus, why is God setting apart Jews who are worshiping under the old system, which is not how he's worshiped now? That doesn't add up. Why is God protecting people who don't believe in him that's a challenge to that view. The other side would be to take the language of the temple, to take it in a figurative context. We know from the book of Hebrews that the worship that took place in the temple of the old covenant, it's been fulfilled in Christ. Now Christ is called the temple. We as the body are called the temple. And, and, and if you go that direction, then what he is saying is, take that measuring rod and mark out those who are believers of Christ in the end times, and protect them. Now, in what way is that protection? Well, uh, the, the language of inner and outer court would be uh, protect their faith, protect their salvation. But the outer court refers to their bodily existence, meaning their faith, their salvation is protected, secured. They're going to make it to the end, but they will not necessarily be protected from the physical harm of the 42 months in which the people of God will experience unparalleled persecution at the hands of the Gentiles. The great city, some have said, is literally Jerusalem. Some have said maybe the earthly city of the world. Basically, your answer to that question is going to take bigger on what you think about the temple. Uh, what are the 42 months? Some would say literal. I, I would be more of that vein because that corresponds with passages we've seen in Daniel 9, Matthew 24, that speak of a seventh, 70th seven, a 70th week that's representative of seven years. 42 months is half of that seven years, a three and a half year period. It would seem to imply that that giving over of the outer court for that 42 months, that would seem, if we were to try to chrono, put this in chronology, what happens at the halfway point, according to Daniel? There's a peace accord struck with the nation of Israel that allows the restoration of uh, proper Jewish worship. And in the middle of that peace accords, the one who they sign it with, the Antichrist, the little horn, uh, will break it and will, will bring a persecution unparalleled. That would seem to be that breaking point of 42, of 42 months. So you can go one of those two ways. Now, having said that, before I answer your question, we got to go a little further because that same direction will take you down to the rest of the passage too. So look with me. So we're either talking about literal, that the measuring out for protection are the elect Jews 
that we've seen, the 144,000 who God sets apart, this returning of the Jewish people to Christ, or it's talking about a protection and preservation of the church, Jew and Gentile, any who would believe and believe in Christ. And you say, well, why, Pastor, there's, uh, how does that apply? Well, obviously, if you hold to a pre-rapture where the church is removed prior to the tribulation, well, how is the church there? Uh, I simply say this, without... We can play sometimes theological word games. Whether the church is removed before the tribulation or not, we know if the, even if the church is removed, there's going to be men and women, boys and girls who come to faith in Christ. Do you know what people who come to faith in Christ are called? The church. So there's going to be a church in some form or another, uh, regardless of the question of where do we pin down the rapture of the church? Is it before, in the middle, or after uh, the tribulation? But here we keep going. Verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. So here we've got a a list of time that corresponds to these 42 months. Sackcloth is the clothing of lament, the clothing of humility, the the, the clothing of mourning, and they're certainly not clothing themselves in sackcloth and humility because they are mourning over their sin. It is because of what they're doing. It's the mourning over the world and mourning over what they're going to be bringing to the world. It says, I will grant my authority, and and these, these two witnesses, these are the two olive trees, the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. They have the power to shut up the sky so the rain does not fall during the days of their prophesying. They have the power over waters to turn them to blood, to strike the earth with every plague as they, strong, as they often desire. When they have finished their testimony, the, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is mystically, or your Bible may say spiritually, a city being viewed through spiritual lens, is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Those from the peoples and the tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate, and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them. They stood on their feet. Great fear fell upon those who were watching them, and they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. Then they went up into heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. In that hour, there was a great earthquake. A tenth of the city fell. Uh, 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. So here's what it says. that there's, there are, And here's how we're going to walk through this for a second. Um, what's the significance of two? Because there's significance to the number two. Uh, what are the various theories on who these witnesses are? Because there are more than you would ever imagine. I'm sure someone out there would say the two witnesses are the Rangers and the Astros. That's how nutso it gets. And then we're going to look at what do we know, what questions are uncertain, and then I'll kind of give you the two main ways that, that you could potentially put all those details together and why it matters for us. Uh, what's significant about the number two? Uh, one, if you go back into the Old Testament, uh, does anyone know the significant about two witnesses? 
What's the significance? If you're going to take someone to judgment, you must have two witnesses stand and attest. That's the most obvious direction is that as these witnesses are going to come down in the, in the peak of wickedness in the world, and they are going to prophetically testify and judge the world and tell the world you are in sin before a holy God, there are two of them, meaning God, God sustains his own law because it's reflective of him. Uh, two may also be significant, depending on how you take the letters to the seven churches. How many of the seven churches received commendation and no criticism? Two. Some would say two represents if the seven churches are uh, not only literal, but also uh, true of uh, the various spirit of every church in any time, then, then only, only that church which overcomes, which of those of Smyrna and Philadelphia would be a witness. There's other things. It may refer to what are the two key portions of the Old Testament? The law and the prophets who are fulfilled and who point to and are fulfilled by Christ. The two witnesses could refer to Peter and Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, the apostle to the Jews. The Old Testament and New Testament, there's a variety of things they could refer to, though certainly on the safest ground we understand on the basis of the Old Testament, two witnesses are required to bring a word of judgment in a trial. And so you have two witnesses who step to the plate. Well, who are these witnesses? Well, there's a variety of theories, and they fall into two, two categories. The theories fall into two categories. Are these witnesses individuals, or are these two witnesses figurative for groups? Those are your, those are your two categories if you really start digging down into it. So let me just give you some ideas out there. So in some of them you'll have heard, some of them you go, what? Some would say these two individuals are Elijah and Moses, law and the prophets. We've already seen Elijah and Moses appear before. They appear with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Do they come back? Some would say it's Elijah and Enoch because Moses, in fairness to him, he's already died, so he gets to come back to die a second time. Whereas Elijah and Enoch are the only two recorded humans in what the Bible tells us who've ever not died. And Scripture says it's been appointed for every man to die once. Now, let me just tell you that I'm not saying it's wrong, but let me just to play devil's advocate. You can't necessarily say it's Elijah and Enoch off that verse because we know there's going to be believers who are there when Jesus comes back who don't die. So you can't say, well, everybody's going to die once. Well, some aren't going to die once. Some are just going to get caught up into heaven and transformed. Could be Elijah and Enoch, though. Could be Elijah and Elisha. Some have said, and we'll see why here in a second, I'll show you. Some have said it's a reference to Joshua and Zerubbabel out of Zechariah. And I'll, you'll understand that context in a second based on the statement of the two olive trees and the two lampstands. Some have said John and James, the sons of thunder, who wanted to what? Call down fire from heaven to consume unbelievers. Some have said Peter and Paul. There's a strong reality if it is two individuals, it's simply two, two yet-to-be-known saints of God to whom God grants uh, a, a prophetic ministry like that of the Old Testament, specifically Moses and Elijah. All of those, and I've summarized, there's a lot more, but you don't need to worry about those. Could be groups. Some have said that the two witnesses, it's using imagery to describe the witnessing end times church that there's going to be, it's going to be the end times church 
uh, who is witnessing. Some have said it too. It stands for the, the Jewish and Gentile believers. Some have even said it's the churches of Smyrna and Philadelphia, those churches that are of that spirit. You've got a variety of opinions that are out there. So what do we know? Well, Look, look back with me at the text. Look what it describes. One, we know there's two. That fits God's law of bringing a word of judgment. We know that these two witnesses, whether they be individuals or groups, they are granted authority. There is an authority to given to them by God to do the work they're going to do. With that authority comes power. Well, how, how do we know that? Notice what it says. These are the two olive branch trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Uh, how many of you have a reference Bible with you tonight? It's got footnotes or a cross-reference. Uh, if you cross-reference that, uh, what does it take you to? What passage? Z- Zechariah 4. Zechariah 4. I know that's everybody's favorite devotional book. You get up and read it a couple times a month. Zechariah 4. Zechariah 4 says this. Then the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who awakened from sleep. He said to me, what do you see? Asking to Zechariah. And Zechariah said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold with its bowl on the top of it and seven lamps with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on top of it. Also two olive trees right by it and on the right side of the bowl then the other on its left side. Then I said to the angel who was speaking to me, what are these, my Lord? So the angel who was speaking me answered and said, you don't know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. By the way, I just love that passages are like that in Scripture from people God uses in big ways. Hey, person God's using in a big way, tell me what this is. Well, I don't know. You tell me. You don't know what it is? That's just good reminders that we should all be humble. Then the angel said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone from shouts of grace, grace to it. And it goes on from there. Here's here's what's described. Uh, You see the imagery of the two olive trees. You see the imagery of the lamps, and, and you hear this clear statement. Joshua and Zerubbabel are two key figures in the history of Israel. When Israel gets back to the promised land, and they are brought under conviction that they need to rebuild the temple. They need to get back to the proper worship of God. And Joshua and Zerubbabel are the two men who lead that charge. The challenge, though, is they're poor. The people of Israel are poor. They're destitute. They, la- they seemingly lack the resources. They're, fa- they're not all back in mass. They have no protection in the city. There is grave opposition from the Gentile peoples who have come to inhabit the land since they were brought into exile. It is a, a position where they look at it from their ability and they go, there's no way we can do this. And Zechariah is sent to encourage and call them back to faithfulness. And what is he told? You tell Zerubbabel, and Joshua's not mentioned there by name, but the context from the book puts him in there. The two lampstands are representative of Joshua and Zerubbabel. So that's where you get the idea that those could potentially be the two witnesses. They're by the olive trees. Well, what are olive trees? What's the significance of olive trees and lampstands? Well, lampstands give light. But we're not talking about lampstands like in our house with bulbs. How did you do light back then? Oil lights. Well, what do the olive trees provide? The oil for the light. Who's the oil for our light? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one 
who empowers the light. The Holy Spirit is the one who fills us. The Holy Spirit is compared with oil. And what does he say? He said, here's this task in front of you. And what is God's command? Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. So when you come back to the two witnesses, understand these are two witnesses who shine the light of God's witness to the world, who are empowered supernaturally by the Holy Spirit, who will take on a ministry that is not possible through the might of man, but only by the power of God Almighty, the Holy Spirit living in them and through them. That's what he's saying. Not only that, but it's a ministry that will succeed despite their lowly, humble stature, and the opposition of the Gentiles. It says this, he proceeds to describe, if anyone wishes to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth, devours their enemies, they shut up the sky, uh, names turn to blood. You'll notice all that imagery is tied to, to, to the major miracles of Moses and Elijah. Now, depending, and typically, if you tend to take these two witnesses as two literal individuals, most, if you go down that road, will take these statements very literally. You're going to have two, two individuals prophesying there in Jerusalem, and somebody's going to come up with a, with a machine gun to try to put them to death, and they're going to open their mouth and incinerate them. They're also going to call and say, no more rain. And all of Texas, if it's still around, will go, well, you haven't changed much of our world. Uh, now, there are some who would take, who would take uh, them as individuals and would, would look at those and say, hey, there, there is some Old Testament fig. They're using literal miracles from the Old Testament, but to describe aspects of their ministry through, through symbols and, and, and figurat- figuratively. And I'll be honest with you, uh, I, you can make a good case both ways that's honest to the text. What I mean by that is when you read about the words of the prophets in the Old Testament, they're described as fire that falls upon those who hear and consumes them. So that's what's there. What's, we'll see, if you take, if you take the two as, as uh, uh, figurative for the church, then you would be more prone to, to take those statements in a figurative way. What is true is that as long as they have a mission to fulfill, there is a protection upon them that denies the entire world the ability to bring any harm. But then it says, when they finished their testimony, when they have finished fully and completely giving out all of their words of witness, the beast that comes up out of the abyss, literally the beast that is presently coming up out of the abyss, right? What does John say? The Antichrist isn't in the world yet, but the spirit of the Antichrist is. Even right now, what's going on in the Middle East? Can we tie it all together? Listen, I, I, I couldn't tell you with prophetic certainty how all that's going on is going to, what I can tell you is chess pieces are moving. Now, whether we're 15 moves away from checkmate or three moves away, pieces are moving. The spirit of the Antichrist is present, has been for a long time. The Antichrist is on his way, whether that'll be in your lifetime or mine or not. Well, I I can't tell you that without fear of having to stand before the Lord and him say, son, why'd you say something dumb? But it says that the beast that comes up out of the abyss, which is an illusion, see that in chapter 13, will make war with them. And will overcome them. At some point, they will be killed in one way or another. Their dead bodies will lie in the great city. 
There's some who would take the great city based on the statement where the Lord was crucified and say this is literally Jerusalem. There's others who would, who would take a reference and, and say the great city is really is, is a reference to uh, the, the wicked world at large. Time didn't permit me to show you both ways. The other one makes more sense on a quick observation, but uh, you can go both ways. The point is, their bodies are laid out in the street, and look at the response of the world. Peoples, tribes, tongue, and nations, they see it. They see their dead bodies. Three and a half days. Now, there's a question we don't have, certain. Is it literally three and a half days they're laying there? It's three and a half days. If some would say these witnesses come at the beginning of the seven years, they're killed at the midway point, they're dead for three and a half years, and those three and a half days are really symbolic for years, and they're, they're risen at the end. And uh, there's, a, there's, there's a lot of wonder on the three and a half days. The point is, they're dead for a brief period where it seems like God's witness fails. But it's only a brief period, and it's an illusion. But do you also know what else it's referencing? They have a three and a half year witness. Who had a three and a half year witness? Jesus. They're dead for three and a half days. Who was dead for three days? Jesus. There's a lot of imagery taking place here. It's why we gotta have humble hands. There's so much going on says that the world will dwell, they, they will rejoice. They're going to celebrate. They're going to send gifts to one another. Now, a few years ago, to say they were going to send gifts to one another, you might say, well, it can't be three literal and a half days. You can't send very many gifts in three and a half days. Now we know we got Amazon. You can send a gift in about a day and a half. So just saying, what maybe was fuzzy is getting a little clearer. Here's the ultimate point there, though. Picture, I mean, really... <laughs> The death of God's witnesses creates a world holiday in the way the world celebrates the death of God's witness. As much as we want to bemoan how rough our culture in this country is, we still have men and women who are politicians who are not saved by grace through faith, but see, generally speaking, the church in a positive light. This is a day when no one in this world who's not saved sees anything of God's witness in a positive light. They are in the streets celebrating like they just won the World Series. Because for three and a half years, the witness of these two witnesses has brought nothing but misery and conviction to the whole world living in sin. But then, what seems like a victory is short-lived because sin never wins. After three and a half days, the breath of life from God comes into them. They stand on their feet. This is obviously an event that many people see. Great fear, dread falls in those. And, and like Jesus, who, who ascended into heaven in a cloud, these two witnesses are, are taken up into heaven in a cloud. There's a voice that says, come up. In a sign of divine vindication and in a, in, in a reality of, of resurrection. And, and it says at their resurrection, an earthquake hits the city that there's large-scale death, and then it makes the statement that, 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 that there's a group who will see this and give glory to God. Now, here's what we know. We know that their ministry is one that hits and discomforts the entire lost world, and that's putting it really kindly. 
We know that their ministry is one reflective of the power and miracles of Moses and Elijah, and their witness is one that is of a nature that that the, the world has not seen for a long time in some ways. We know that uh, they give a clear testimony what's going on. If this is taking place chronologically after the seals and the trumpets, then they're telling the world why what happened has happened. If it's taking place as those things are taking place, they're telling the world why what is happening is happening. We know they'll be in conflict with the Antichrist and they're untouchable until they fulfill God's purpose. Where they're left and killed for public mockery, they're not even given the privilege of being buried. It's not just that the world rejoices over their death. I mean, you think, let me put it this way. The horror of what the stories coming out of Israel and Hamas did to individuals. That is what will be done to these individuals and the whole world will celebrate. Just to contemporize that for us, that's what it is. They're not allowed to be buried. Their bodies are paraded through the streets. It's a holiday. We know that they'll be resurrected, that it'll be public, that there will be a response. We know that the Antichrist is coming. Now there's things we wonder, are these miracles, like I said, are they literally gonna breathe fire or is that figurative for some aspect of their prophetic ministry? The nature of their death, depending on if you take these to be two real individuals, if you take it as two real individuals, they're dead, they're really dead, they're literally dead. If you take it to be uh, two, two witnesses as referencing the church, well, you're gonna take it to mean much of the church is persecuted and killed, that the small little bit that remains is effectively silenced, And those are gonna kind of be the two ways you deal with that. I've mentioned what's the nature of the three and a half days. What about their resurrection? Does their resurrection happen in the middle of the tribulation if they prophesy for the first three and a half years and they're only dead three and a half days? And and is that then response, is the earthquake, is that right at the breaking of the covenant with the Antichrist? And and it says that many will fear, is that when that remnant of Jews will see their resurrection and respond? Well, that's one way of, of understanding it. Is it possible, what if, they, what if they don't show up and minister, remember, until that 42 months, that latter half of the tribulation when the outer court's handed into the Gentiles' hands? Well, then, is their resurrection seemingly at the return of Jesus? In which case, you begin to see the day of the Lord with the earthquake. There's questions there. There's questions there that just are a little fuzzy. There's some great options out there. There's, there's things that are there. There's questions and I'll, just, and I'll just be honest with you, uh, we've only got a few minutes. I have always leaned, and I think I still lean, that these are two literal individuals God will raise up. You can, though, uh, there is a very biblically rooted out of the Old Testament and New Testament case that this is referring to the end times church who will be alive believing in Jesus at the end. And God will use to provide a witness to the world. Depending on if you think the rapture happens before, in the middle, or at the end, it could be that their resurrection is is uh, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, the believers being caught up into the sky. There's a lot, honestly, the more I dig into the text, the more questions you find and you realize, if I sit here and say with absolute authority, I have it all figured out, I will in fact guarantee myself of standing before the Lord and him saying, "Mm, son, you should have tried a little bit of humble pie that night, November 1st. And I don't like to imply some. What I'm telling you is, What we do know is this, 
that in the darkest, most wicked days of this world, where the world has en masse looked at God and said, you are our creator and we hate your stinking guts. God, even in that day, does not leave the world without a witness. Without a witness that in proclaiming, and personally, I think their witness is not just simply you're going to burn, you're going to burn. I think they're proclaiming the gospel. The gospel is a word of sweet salvation and a word of harsh judgment. It's both. And they're faithful. God, God, God leaves the, pe- the, 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 the world with a witness. The reality is there is a protection, whether it is, it is the elect remnant of Israel, literally back in 1 and 2, whether it is a protection of the church, here is the reality. God does protect and preserve the salvation of his people. He does. He doesn't spare us from bodily harm and the potential of experiencing real persecution. But here's a great note. If perhaps verses one and two are referring to God protecting the salvation of his people, even though their bodies are exposed to... Here's Here's a great truth from that. It means no matter what tomorrow is gonna come in hostility against me, by the grace of God, my faith will not be shaken so far that I can't keep following. That's a wonderful truth. That causes me, when my faith does feel shaky, to just run before him in his grace. We find in this passage, it's a reminder all throughout Scripture, God does have a plan and a mission, a purpose, a ministry to do through our lives. And if we will follow him, we are untouchable to anything outside of his plan until it's fulfilled and he takes us home. That's, that's a powerful truth. It ought to inspire all of us to take a little heart check and go, Lord, am I, am I walking in your path? And, and understand, when I say protection, you're untouchable except to what he allows until it's all finished. These witnesses are killed. And whether you want to go with the individual route or the group route, real believers die but not because God isn't in control. And I promise God escorts every one of them home. We find in this passage, God's people are called to speak prophetically. Listen, church family, we have to get away from the idea that missionaries are people called out from us who go overseas. I love missionaries. I'm not trying to degrade our international missionaries. A missionary is someone who resides in a foreign land and gives witness to the gospel. Let me just rephrase this for us. Not one of us resides in our homeland, if you're in Jesus. You're in a foreign land. And we got to start seeing all ourselves as missionaries like Jesus does. We have a witness. Witness is not just for the pastors and the professional missionaries. It's for the Christian. And our witness is prophetic. And remember, what is most of prophecy in Scripture? It's not the ability to predict what's coming in the future. It's speaking forth God's Word, His character, to the present place and situation. We have a prophetic witness. And if we're going to really witness prophetically to the world, let me just warn you, it's going to mean sometimes and more and more we look extreme. If you're going to be prophetic, there's movies you're not going to watch or let your kids watch. There's music you're going to stop. 
Listen to it. We have this joke in, in a, I'll get in trouble with a couple people in here tonight, but not too many because most of y'all are old enough, you really don't care. Um, but I'd, I'd step in it back, at, back in college ministry. Uh, we, we would talk all the time. You know, you know who, honestly, I think is the single most influential individual on women under the age of 40? It's Taylor Swift. I'm not even kidding. It is. It is. Do you realize Travis Kelsey is a future Hall of Famer with two Super Bowl rings. He is an amazing NFL player, and his life has just gotten rocked from going on some dates with Taylor Swift. That's pretty crazy when you're already at an insane level of famous and someone else can outpace you. And we would have this joke. I like old Taylor's music, but I can't stomach any of Taylor's music post-2014. It's got all sorts of filth in it. Doesn't mean I hate her guts. I don't. It's not an issue of her. It's an issue of I can't prophetically live out my witness for Christ and condone and fill my mind with what's in those songs. Sometimes we're going to look extreme. By the way, I don't know if you've paid attention in the midst of our world being in absolute chaos. The new speaker of the house, he's a Southern Baptist. And he has been accused by three very different versions of liberals. Very different, not the same kind of liberal, very different versions of liberals. He has been, he has been compared to the shooter in Maine. All because he said, do you want to know what my worldview is? Read the Bible. That's the statement. He's crazy like the shooter in Maine who heard voices and killed people. The former uh, speaker, the White House press secretary, uh, said that he, is the, he represents the single greatest threat to America and democracy. Listen, to now say, she said, he, he, she, this is crazy to me too. He didn't say the Bible informs his worldview. He said the Bible is his worldview. Those are the same thing, lady. But I want you to hear me. We are now in a day and time where to say, I believe the Bible, you are now an extremist. To be prophetic means we have to be willing not to make ourselves extreme. We have to just be willing to be faithful to Jesus. And when being faithful to Jesus causes us to look extreme, we just have to be okay with it. No matter what that looks like as on down the line. We need to understand the world will often react with hostility to our witness, and the world's reaction to our witness is not the determiner of our success. We shouldn't suffer because we're doing wrong things. First Peter's clear about that. If I am the reason people turn away from Jesus and not the message, I need to do some soul searching and repenting. But if I suffer for doing what is right and people don't respond to the witness that I proclaim through my life and words because they simply don't like Jesus, that does not mean I am unsuccessful as a Christian. The world doesn't determine. Here's what we need to understand. The witnessing church possesses tremendous power and authority to carry out its mission. God did not leave us as witnesses in this world to do it in our own power to our, by our own wisdom. What did Jesus say to the disciples? Don't you dare. Here's your mission. Go be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and don't you dare do it until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. 
Church family, a passage like this, we read it. We read of God's supernatural empowering of his witness. Realize God has supernaturally empowered us as his witness right now. The problem with most of us as individuals, the problem with most of our churches, the reason we don't always experience that power is because we don't always walk by the Spirit. Instead, we walk by what we dream to do for Jesus. Instead, we, we walk by what our preference is for church. Instead, can you imagine how many churches have missed the empowering of the Spirit as they were bickering about which song God wants to hear them play that day and by which song God wants them to hear play that day? They mean the song they want played that day? We, we can pick up all the ridiculous stuff we can fight about in church. And listen, there's stuff worthy of causing a squawk in church about. Don't mistake me. And I've had to be that person that time or two. But we fight about a lot. I can't believe they want to put red carpet instead of teal carpet. I personally don't think God cares what color the carpet is unless it's burnt orange because that's just ugly. <laughs> but I might be biased. I'm kidding about God caring about that, not about me being a little bit biased. That's not a joke. We don't always experience that power because a lot of times we're more focused on what our will for God is and our will for the church is to do for God than we are what God wants to do in and through us. And you know what that is? It's the spirit of Laodicea, of pride, deception, self-sufficiency. Understand, church family, it's a rough day to be a Christian. It's going to get rougher at some point. And I have wonderful news. We have the power to do it right, faithful, and fully until whatever our appointed end is. We just need to walk by the Spirit submitted to Him. Praise God. It's seven. I'm stopping. Let's pray. Jesus, we look to You, and while we acknowledge there's a lot of questions here, we also, Lord, acknowledge that You have called us and made us to be your witness to this world. And Holy Spirit, you enable us to do it, every one of us as individuals and all of us corporately as the local church you call First Baptist Church Pflugerville. And Father, may you find us to be a church filled with the spirit of Smyrna, filled with the spirit of Philadelphia. May you find us to be a church who, Jesus, we just simply take you at your word. We love you firstly and completely, and we are willing to do whatever you say, wherever you say it, however you say it, whenever you say it, all because it is all about you and we are in awe of you. May that be true of us in this room tonight. May that be true in those who are joining online. May that be true of those who listen to this after the fact recorded. May that be true of those of us who gather Sunday. May that be true of your church, Lord. May it be true of my heart. Because you are worthy. And we didn't get all the way through it tonight, but the very next verses say, not only are you worthy, but that you win. So Jesus, we look to you. Transform us. May we hold nothing dear but you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.